Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I have four brand new movies to review for you. Three of them came out in theaters and one on streaming this past weekend, and the other one came out the weekend before, but I didn't get to review it until now. So we'll start from the movie that is most likely to make the most money this weekend. The first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. This is a film that is written and directed by Adama Abo, who is making her feature film debut with this movie. It's actually based on a short film she directed back in 2018 of the same name. And that short film didn't have any well-known actors in it. This film has Regina Hall and Sterling K. Brown playing the head pastor and the first lady of a prominent Southern Baptist megachurch, presumably in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where this movie is filmed. And thank God for this, Tyler Perry despite this kind of movie being his bread and butter, had nothing to do with this film. So I thought it has a funny title. Tyler Perry has nothing to do with it. This movie has the chance to be great. And it did have the chance to be great. It just wasn't great. And I'm not going to be too hard on this film because the director is making her feature film debut. So I think she's bound to make some rookie mistakes. And One of the primary mistakes that this movie makes is its lack of focus. One of the primary distributors of this film is Focus Features, and that's all the more ironic because this film is very unfocused. It's labeled as a comedy, and it certainly is a satire, but I wasn't sure when I was watching this film whether I should laugh or whether I should cry honestly, and some of the parts that I guess were meant to be funny really missed the mark. But here's the plot of the film. In the aftermath of a huge scandal, Trinity Childs, who is the first lady of a prominent Southern Baptist megachurch, whose pastor is the charismatic and very wealthy and successful Lee Curtis Childs, who's played by Sterling K. Brown, attempts to help her pastor husband, rebuild their congregation. So the scandal in this movie is allegations of sexual misconduct. But the movie pulls a punch, actually pulls several punches when revealing this sexual misconduct scandal. It says that the pastor, Lee Curtis Childs, is accused of sexual misconduct, but it just leaves it at that. It doesn't say who is accusing him, what woman or women, or probably more politically correct, people or persons would accuse him of sexual misconduct and what the sexual misconduct entailed. Was it him being caught soliciting prostitution? Would it be him making inappropriate advances on somebody who works for the megachurch? The movie doesn't say. And I think those kinds of details are important. And I would presume that His sexual misconduct didn't involve minors, otherwise he would go directly to prison. But his downfall leads to him still having this megachurch in his name, it still having a lavish home with basketball courts and swimming pools, in addition to a closet full of 
the best shoes and the suits from some prominent companies. It doesn't seem like he's fallen too far down. It's just the difference is now with this big mega church, only about five people are coming to his church. And you see him in the beginning of the film having a following, not only this mega church, but also a, a broadcast, presumably a weekly broadcast going along with it, very similar to Joel Osteen. But it's it's very unclear what the details of this of these sexual misconduct allegations are. And then and the other way that this movie pulls a punch is it doesn't exactly show you how much of a downfall he, he's made other than losing his congregation. He doesn't lose his business. And also he makes some very poor decisions later on in the film to to try to make to give his church a comeback. And as I'm watching this film, I'm thinking, of course he's a a prominent pastor, but he also has to have some sort of marketing savvy. And the way he tries, he and his wife try to build up their reputation of their uh, mega church is to have Trinity, Regina Hall's character, stand on the side of the road and hold a sign that says honk for Jesus. And that that's not very good advertising. And I think anybody who's taken probably one day of business courses could probably tell you that our car is going to honk for Jesus. Yeah, possibly, but it's not going to get people back into the church. And that's probably one of the ways that this movie failed as a satire, because this, this pastor who's played by Sterling K Brown knows how to sell himself and also not of course, preach the gospel, but he also knows how to market himself. But the ways in which he tries to market himself, even on a shoestring budget, are just not particularly smart. It would be one thing if he was going around putting up posters or even getting on social media. That requires a little bit more effort. It is exhausting, but it's a better way to get the word out there than holding up a sign saying, honk for Jesus. And the mo- the movie really loses its comedic touch when he's trying to get Regina Hall's character to put some more effort into holding the sign that says Honk for Jesus. And one of the ways in which she does so, which I guess is supposed to be funny, but I didn't quite get it, is to put on white makeup, black lipstick, and black liner around her eyes to make her kind of look like a mime. And that's exactly what she looks like. But I don't get how putting on makeup will get people to come into your church. And that's just one of the ways in which Honk for Jesus Save Your Souls fails as a satire. It's supposed to be a biting satire of organized religion, but it's really more of a satire of televangelist, which I get, but there was probably a smarter way to do this. And I think maybe one of the reasons the movie didn't quite hit that mark is because Sterling K. Brown is playing the role of this pastor. And I think maybe somebody funnier like J.B. Smoove or Dion Cole would have probably hit the satire mark 
a little bit better. And I'm not saying that satire is always funny. A lot of times satire is quite dramatic, but this movie doesn't really know exactly what it's uh, satirizing. Is it organized religion? Is it these televangelists who preach more uh, the church of prophetology rather than the, uh, the word of Christ? Or is it just somebody who's really bad at marketing? The movie doesn't really hone in on what doesn't... Basically, the ways in which these people are trying to market their church. And also, since we don't really know what the sexual misconduct misconduct scandal is, and also the fact that the allegations against Sterling K. Brown's character have not been proven, which are one of the ways in which this film does pull a punch, and it, it just doesn't really work for the, the narrative. But the fact that there, there are allegations but not anything proven is no reason for a whole congregation to leave your church except for maybe just five people because unless the allegations have been proven – then you know you're innocent until proven guilty. I mean, of of course some people will leave the church, but not in the droves that this movie expects you to believe they would. So, Honk for Jesus Save Your Soul has a very funny title, but it just doesn't work as a comedy or as a satire, which is why it gets my rating of a strikeout. I do think that Adama Abo had the right idea when she was developing this movie, and I haven't seen the short film upon which it's based, which I would imagine would must have been great because they developed it into a feature film, but the movie just doesn't have the focus, which is ironic since it's from focus features, that it needs to be a necessary satire. So Honk for Jesus Save Your Soul is very low on laughs, and it's also very low on having a point. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Gigi and Nate. This is a film that is surprisingly not based on a true story because it has a lot of elements in this which made me believe initially when I was first watching the film that it is based on a true story. But it's about a young man whose life is turned upside down after he has left a quadriplegic and... He becomes a quadriplegic as a result of mesothelioma, not from a car accident or any other kind of injury. But moving forward seems nearly impossible for Nate until he meets his unlikely service animal, Gigi, a curious and intelligent capuchin monkey. Now, for those of you who don't know, a capuchin monkey is a very small monkey, and you've definitely seen it if you've ever seen an episode of one of the uh, of the very first season of Friends. That was the kind of monkey that Ross kept as a pet until he was forced to give him up later in the season. 
And also, that same monkey that played Marcel the Monkey on Friends was also in the movie Outbreak from 1994. 28 years ago, if you can believe it. So that monkey was a bit of a celebrity. And also, Ace Ventura, uh, Jim Carrey's character, had the same pet monkey, but it it was not the same monkey from Friends or Outbreak. But my point is that... The Gigi in this movie is a capuchin monkey like Marcel the Monkey, and he is very adorable. The movie is directed by Nick Ham, who is an Irish director, and is written by David Hudgens, although this film takes place in America, and it actually takes place predominantly in Nashville, Tennessee, which is why it led me to believe that it was a true story, but there was no epilogue at the end or those obligatory pictures, but it still was a very good story. Nate Gibson in this movie is played by Charlie Rowe, and once he gets mesothemal mesothelioma, excuse me, I messed that up a little bit, it's very easy to feel bad for him because he's just on the cusp of going to college, but then he gets mesothelioma, he's admitted to the hospital, and his his family, especially his parents, his mother Claire, who's played by Academy Award winner Marsha Gay Harden, and his father Dan, who's played by Jim Belushi, are obviously distraught. He also has some other support in his older sister, Katie, who's played by Josephine Lankford, his younger sister, Hannah, played by, excuse me, his younger sister, Annabelle, played by Hannah Riley, and also his precocious um, grandmother, who's known as Mama Blanche, who's played by Diane Ladd. All of them are willing to help him through this undeserved quadriplegia in which he's suffering. And the movie takes place over a period of five years. And as you might imagine, Nate Gibson is in despair. And when he first gets this capuchin monkey, who's a rescue animal, who becomes his service animal, he is at first a little reluctant to warm up to him. But as these kinds of movies go, he eventually does. And The movie is very convincing in making you believe the plight of Nate here, and also the chemistry between him and Gigi is really, really good. I'm not sure, I'm, I'm pretty sure that the Capuchin Monkey is a real monkey who they trained for this movie and not a CGI character. If it is CGI, it looks really convincing, but I am quite sure that this monkey is real. And if if it's not, then I, I think it's probably kudos to the acting in this movie that just makes it um, all the more believable. But Gigi and Nate is one of those movies that was not on my What's Coming Up Next radar because... I just saw that this was in my local multiplex, so I just checked it out. But this movie has actually been in production for quite some time. It Filming concluded um, on May 29th, 2021. Why it took so long to be released in theaters, I don't exactly know, but it was well worth the wait. And it goes through the usual story arc that you might expect for a movie about somebody who's had... In injury they didn't deserve, and they also befriend an animal. But 
the movie really starts to experience some conflict when there is a Karen who um, who is actually named Martha Greeter, who's played by Tara Summers, and she, oh, I'm sorry, her, her character is actually Chloe Gaines, that's the name of her character, and she's played by Welker White, and this Karen of any other name uh, happens to run an animal rights organization, and she begins to basically bring up other people in her organization to harass the Gibson family because they're keeping a presumably dangerous animal with them. And while capuchin monkeys are not in and of themselves dangerous and actually quite cute, they do have the potential to carry disease with them. And that is a valid point. The movie kind of lost me where the animal rights organizations began to go to really extreme measures to protest against the family, particularly since the son in the family is quadriplegic. I don't know if they would exactly go that far by picketing in front of their house, wearing monkey masks and throwing jars of red paint at their house. That seems unbelievably extreme to me, which is why it kind of lost its credibility to me in a sense. And I also think that if there's some sort of local law enforcement, including pet control, who goes over to the house, sees that it's not unsanitary and also sees that the monkey is quite safe at this house I think they would probably leave it at that rather than doing what they did in this film, which was go all the way to the Tennessee State House in Nashville to plead their case. And I'm not going to tell you exactly what happens, but that's where the film lost it a little for me. But I think the 60% of the film up to the point where they meet that Karen, who's the head of the animal rights organization, was where the movie hooked me. So that's why I give Gigi and Nate my rating of a checkout. I think it is a very sweet film. It could have definitely fooled me when it came to it not being a true story because a lot of it seemed very true, but... When all was said and done, I don't exactly know if this movie was completely made up, what message it was trying to convey. Just let people have whatever service animals they want or that animal rights organizations have bad intentions. I don't exactly know, but Gigi and Nate was a serviceable film and it was one that surprised me how good it was. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Breaking. This is not to be confused with other movies with that title, like the 1983 film Breaking, as well as its sequel, Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo. 
Also, don't confuse it with Breaking Bad either. Breaking is a recent film that stars John Boyega as a former Marine Corps veteran, Brian Brown Easley, who is in financial trouble and robs a, uh, robs a bank. It is written and directed by Abby Damaris Corbin and co-written by Kwame K. Arma, based on actually an article. It's, it's a true story, but also on an article that was published in the magazine Task and Purpose that was called They Didn't Have to Kill Him, written by Aaron Gell. And the movie also co-stars Nicole Bahari from Orange is the New Black, Connie Britton, Jeffrey Donovan, and Michael Kenneth Williams in hit one of his very last film roles. In fact, it probably is his very last film role and what a film role it is. So the underlying message of this film is that being a veteran in this country, when your finances are strained is harder than it might seem. So this Marine war veteran faces mental and emotional challenges when he tries to reintegrate back into civilian life. What he's trying to do is collect his pension from the VA but he finds that he has to go through a lot of red tape and wait in very long lines. And this movie does a great job showcasing the frustration that I'm sure hundreds, if not thousands of veterans, especially veterans of color, probably feel on a daily basis. And the movie certainly makes you sympathize well, actually more empathize with John Boyega's character. And it's even more heartbreaking where at the very end, it's confirmed that the bank robbery, or rather the holdup in this film, actually happened in real life. There was a standoff between the real Brian Brown Easley and the FBI. And he holds up the bank not to rob them, although he could have easily done that, but to send a message to as many media outlets as he possibly could about the frustrations of his life as a homeless veteran. And also added to that pressure is the fact that he is divorced and estranged from his first wife and his daughter, whom he loves very much. And the dynamic that goes on between John Boyega's character and Michael K. Williams, who is a member of the um, the task force unit who's trying to negotiate with him and is also a fellow veteran like John Boyega's character, is very fascinating, and it's also very frustrating. And I think Michael K. Williams, in what is probably his last role, turns in the performance of his career, and that's saying a lot considering that he was in the show The Wire as the notorious and immortal Omar Little, who made that show exactly what it was. I mean, it wasn't the only good thing about it, but he was certainly one of the most memorable characters on that show. But to see him play a hero in this is is certainly, he, he plays it very well, and just makes me all the sadder that Michael K. Williams is no longer with us. But John Boyega also turns in his best career performance here. And the movie is certainly very tense, especially when he holds up this Wells Fargo. And I would love to see this film get the nominations that it certainly deserves. 
there are parallels between this movie and Dog Day Afternoon. It's probably one critic described it as a modern day Dog Day Afternoon. And it certainly has that kind of, it's certainly an easy comparison. It can also be compared to Spike Lee's um, film about a bank robbery as well that stars Denzel Washington. And I temporarily forgot the name of that movie, so I'm just going to move on. But Breaking is a fantastic film. It's not just heightened dramatically during the bank um, the bank holdup, but it also shows some empathetic compassion for this veteran that John Boyega plays. And amazingly, John Boyega is able to convey that he's experiencing both the financial pressures of being a, of, of being a post-war civilian, as well as dealing with other psychological trauma like post-traumatic stress disorder without, I was able to determine or extrapolate that he was a veteran before the movie even revealed that he was. And that says a lot about John Boyega's acting. And one of the very primary reasons that I give breaking my rating of a knockout. It's one of the best films that I've seen so far this year. John Boyega and Michael K. Williams do amazing in this film. The two women who work in the uh, bank here, um, Nicole Bahari and Salinas uh, Leva, um, the latter of whom was in Orange is the New Black, are amazing in this film as well. And they react in different ways to being held up, but it's easy to empathize with them as well. So Breaking is a very tense film, and it's even sadder when you realize at the end that it's actually a true story. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Love in the Villa. This is a film that takes place primarily in Verona, Italy, which if you know your literature and your history, Verona, Italy is the home of Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet didn't actually exist in real life, but that's where Shakespeare chose to have Romeo and Juliet take place. What his rationale behind having it take place in Verona, Italy was, I don't exactly know. I never really found out William Shakespeare's connection to the city, and even though I studied Romeo and Juliet in English class in high school, like many of you did, I don't think that point was revealed. But William Shakespeare 
had many of his stories take place all over Europe. I don't think there were any of his stories that actually took place in London, England, where he resided. Although I could be wrong about that. I'm a film critic, not a Shakespeare scholar. But Love in the Villa, I almost said Via, but I'm going to pronounce it Villa from here on out, is a movie about a young woman who is a third grade teacher. Her name is Julia Hutton, and she's played by the beautiful Cat Graham. And she takes a trip when she's on vacation to romantic Verona, Italy after a breakup, only to find that the, sh- that the villa she reserved was double booked. And she'll have to ser- share her vacation with a cynical British man who is a sommelier by the name of Charlie Fletcher, who's played by Tom Hopper. And the movie is somewhat predictable when you find out that Julie, I I said Julia Hutton, I meant Julie Hutton, breaks up with her boyfriend of four years, Brandon, who's played by Raymond Black. And when you look at Cat Graham, you kind of wonder why anyone would want to break up with her. As a matter of fact, there could have easily been a subplot about one of her third grade students having this immense crush on her. That would have been an interesting uh, plot point as well, or a subplot, but... Brandon is a district attorney in her native St. Paul, Minnesota. Well, actually, I think she lives and works in uh, Minneapolis, but Brandon, uh, the character, it's revealed that he was the second youngest district attorney in St. Paul. And I don't really know my geography of Minnesota. I don't exactly know how far Minneapolis and St. Paul are from one another, but regardless... They're living in Minnesota, and financially they're doing well, which is how Julie is able to go on this lavish uh, vacation to Verona, Italy. But it may not be exactly lavish because she flies coach, not first class, in a pretty funny scene where she's sandwiched between the window seat of the plane and also this very large guy next to her. And there's also a kid who is routinely kicking the seat behind her. So you can definitely empathize with her when she spills wine on her shirt and has to get one of those cheesy tourist shirts when she's going on her uh, way to this villa, presumably through Airbnb. And she finds out that she booked it at the same time and in the same room as this guy, Charlie Fletcher. But once she goes into the room and she sees Charlie Fletcher with his shirt off and he is quite a specimen of man (laughs) from my perspective, you kind of know that they're going to start fighting and bickering and then they're going to eventually fall in love. It's, it's a tale as old as time for lack of a better word, even older than the story of Romeo and Juliet. But what makes this movie work is actually the chemistry between Cat Graham and Charlie Hopper. They are quite charming together. And also, some of the pranks they pull when they're getting on each other's nerves are actually very funny. And I I thought that this kind of forced slapstick wouldn't work with very many other people, especially people as good-looking as Cat Graham and Tom Hopper. But when they pull these pranks, they actually are very funny, especially when it's discovered that Charlie Fletcher is allergic to cats. But once they start to actually fall in love, and that's not um, spoiling too much, that's when you kind of 
watched this film and thought, how could you not see this film and not fall in love with Cat Graham? And Cat Graham certainly has had her share of movies in which she has played the uh, leading role of uh, in a certain romantic comedy. Two years ago, she was actually in a Netflix original film called Operation Christmas Drop, which was also very silly, but I liked it better than I expected I would. And Cat Graham actually shows that she is, in terms of her acting ability, a step above many women who are in those Hallmark films, like Candace Cameron Bure, for example. Although, I, I could get into my tangent about Hallmark films, especially Hallmark Christmas movies, but the point is, in terms of the love story in the film, it is somewhat predictable, but the movie is certainly makes the most of making Cat Graham look absolutely dazzling, which he which he certainly is, and if I didn't have a girlfriend myself, whom I love very much, who is definitely listening to this uh, broadcast, I would say that Cat Graham is one of those actresses you not only want to date, you also want to cuddle her. And <laughs> fortunately, she has the acting chops to make her also believable as well. But this movie also serves as a really good love letter to Verona, Italy itself. It has the statue of Juliet. It has the letters to Juliet that adorn the walls of a certain area around the via in which Julie is staying. And there's also another wall that has just lockets on it. I don't know what the lockets are for. I'm not sure if you're supposed to take a key and find the locket that belongs to the one you love. That would be a good marketing ploy. But either way, it just still looks very good. And I pretty sure this movie was filmed on location in fair Verona, but if it wasn't, um, it still makes Verona look amazing and certainly more like a viable tourist destination than Venice, Milan, Florence, Rome, Sicily, and all those other places that are tourist attractions in Italy as well. But you don't have to love Romeo and Juliet to love love in the via uh, or love in the villa. But I appreciated it myself. I don't think the title of the film, Love in the Villa, was the best title. I would have liked In Fair Verona. I think that's an excellent title for a film, but the movie doesn't seem to have, or the people who distributed the film, specifically Netflix, who released the film on September 1st, 2022, thought of titling it that way, but it would have been a nice title, but title aside and the otherwise predictable story arc of the romantic comedy, I do actually have to give this film a marginal knockout because yeah, the love story is a bit predictable and you also don't realize why somebody would break up with Cat Graham or somebody who looks like Cat Graham when you're watching this film, but I liked the love story when it was going on, and I thought the pranks while the the two leads were in their annoyed stage were actually executed and choreographed very well, and the scenes where the character Charlie falls in love with Julie are certainly very well shot. It's predictability hindered it a little bit, but I still enjoyed it and arguably a lot more than any kind of Hallmark or Lifetime-like films that followed this kind of mold unabashedly.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my penultimate segment, What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of September 4th through September 8th, 2022. And there are quite a few films that are coming out uh, oh, actually, I, I stand corrected. Uh, the week is September 4th through September 9th, 2022. But there are a lot of films that are coming out in theaters this coming week. After Labor Day, interestingly enough, I would have thought that the onslaught of films would come out on Labor Day weekend. But I guess movie studios are presuming that a lot of people are going out and enjoying the warm weather while we still have summer in a lot of in a, many parts of this country and for that matter this world but there are several movies that are coming out the week of September 4th through September 9th 2022 and I'll name you some of them on September 5th one movie that's coming out or subject to be released in theaters is a film that's called No Ordinary Life. It is a documentary about the ravages of war and conflict and the aftermath of violent uprising, which are circumstances that most people shun or avoid, but for news photographers, it provides them to spotlight the opportunity to spotlight injustices and turmoil for a global audience. Some of the people who are featured in this film in- include Christiane Amapu- Amar. Christiane Amanpour, Maria Fleet, and Margaret Moth, amongst other people. So this movie looks certainly interesting. It's a film that premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival this year. If it's out in a theater near me, I'll try to see it. I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on September 7th, on Wednesday, is a movie that's called After Ever Happy. Not Happily Ever After, After Ever Happy, the movie stars Hero Finds Tiffin and Josephine Lankford. As a shocking truth about a couple's families emerge, excuse me, after, shoot, as a shocking truth about a couple's families emerges, that's a tough uh, prepositional phrase to say, it truly is, the two lovers discover that they are not so different from each other. Tessa is no longer the sweet, simple, good girl she was when she first met Harden any more than he is the cruel, moody boy she fell so hard for. I don't know what to make of this film, but it sounds interesting. It is based on a novel by Anna Todd, and it's directed by Castile Landon. And the stars of the movie, as I say, uh, as I said, were Hero Finds Tiffin, who plays the rebellious Harden, and Josephine Lankford, who plays Tessa. And they are beautiful people who in this film definitely have problems. I don't know if I'm going to see this movie. If I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But I don't know. I'm not one to write off very many films unless maybe they have actors or directors who have failed me in the past. But After Ever Happy is a film that I will try to see. And if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on Wednesday, September 7th, 2022, is The House of the Lost on the Cape. The House of the Lost on the Cape. This one is an anime film, and it is about a 17-year-old girl experiencing a sense of yearning and comfort in the traditional Japanese house, Mayoga. 
That synopsis doesn't really tell me very much, but uh, it's a film that looks relatively interesting. But when I look at the roster of acting talent in it, I don't see any Americans doing the English voices here. It's all uh, Japanese or Asian actors, which leads me to presume that the movie is not yet in English, or if it is, they don't insert those uh, celebrity voices that will draw as big a crowd as possible. But The House of the Lost on the Cape is a movie I might see, and if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. On Friday, September 9th, there are several films that are subject to being released in theaters. Not every one of these films I'm going to get to because my guess is not all of the eight films that are listed here will be released in theaters near me or you, but this one probably has the best chance. The movie is called Barbarian, and this is a movie for which I've seen many posters, but I haven't seen previews because I don't watch previews. It's a movie about a woman staying at an Airbnb who discovers that the house she has rented is not what it seems. The star of the movie is Georgina Campbell, who is jaw-droppingly gorgeous. The movie also co-stars Bill Skarsgård, who is no stranger to horror films, especially after playing Pennywise in both of the It films. And the movie also co-stars Justin Long, who we haven't seen in quite some time. Movie co-stars also another actress I haven't heard of or I haven't seen in a long time, Kate Bosworth. 15 to 20 years ago, Kate Bosworth seemed to be in a lot of films, but she's fallen off the radar since then. But she also co-stars in this film. Barbarian is a movie that I can practically guarantee that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think of it on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters nationwide is a film that's called Medieval. This is the story of 15th century Czech icon and warlord Jan Ziska, who defeated armies of the Teutonic Order and the Holy Roman Empire. The movie stars Ben Foster, Sophie Lowe, and Michael Caine, amongst other people. It's got a great cast, I can tell you that. And this is a movie I probably will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters nationwide is a film that's called Bra Mastra Part 1. Shiva, which sounds like a foreign film, and lo and behold, it is. This is a Bollywood film, or at least a film that's made in India, because not every film that's made in India is necessarily Bollywood, but this is is what looks like a big-budget film, because the CGI that I could see in one of these stills is very, very impressive. The CGI I'm looking at right now is of this mortal man who's running away from this soldier who has 12 heads, literally, and his skin is red. And yeah, he'd make me want to run too. But this is the story of Shiva, who sets out in search of love and self-discovery. During his journey, he has to face many evil forces that threaten our existence. Not just his existence, our existence. It sounds like quite the epic film, but I don't know if this film is coming out in a theater near me. It's a film that runs a total of two hours, which is actually kind of short for an Indian film because Indian films are not afraid to go on for three to three and a half hours, although they do have intermissions in the middle. But in America, 
they say intermission in the middle, but then they just go on to the next scene. They don't actually go on to an intermission. So Bob Mastra part one, Shiva is a film that I might see, but I doubt it. But if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters nationwide on September 9th is a film that's called True Things, which follows a young woman living on the fringes of society who becomes intoxicated by a stranger who overwhelms her quiet life. The movie stars Ruth Wilson, Tom Burke, no relation, at least not that I know of, and Haley Squires, among, amongst others. Yeah, Ruth, Ruth Wilson is one of those actresses who's not exactly a household name, but you've seen her in many other films before, like, or other TV shows. For instance, she was the other woman in the TV show The Affair, and she's also been in movies like Saving Mr. Banks, the Disney film. I don't know if I'm going to see this film, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. Now that I've given you a spoken word preview of all the movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of September 4th through September 9th, 2022, it's now time for me to get into the next segment of what's coming up next, which is where I give you the movies that are subject to being released on streaming for that week, September 4th through September 9th, 2022. And there are several. There's one, there are actually two that are coming out on Tuesday, September 6th. They're both documentaries. The first one is called Get Smart With Money. And I can only imagine that that's probably one of those documentaries that tells you how to spend your money more responsibly. I'm going to see it. I may not review it for you on this week's show or next week's show, but I'll take a look at it and hopefully it is informative as well as entertaining. Another documentary that is subject to being released in, uh, on Netflix on Tuesday, September 6th is a Netflix original that is called Untold the Race of the Century. And as I told you before, it is also a documentary, but I don't have very much information on that. But I can tell you that there are more documentaries that are premiering on Thursday, September 8th. One of them is called The Anthrax Attacks. And this is a documentary, not a docuseries, as far as I can tell. But this is probably about the anthrax attacks that took place in 2001, shortly after the 9-11 attacks. And that was also a scary time, even though I knew that no one was going to send me anthrax. I still was pretty cautious at that time. But that's what I presume that the anthrax attacks is about, and it is indeed a documentary. There's also a foreign film that's coming out on Thursday, September 8th, also a Netflix original, and the movie is called Diorama, or maybe Diorama in its native language, I don't know. But the movie is about two people by the name of Frida and Bjorn who are experiencing their love story from passion to marriage to family life from a scientific perspective. Now, that's a different twist on romantic dramas, 
But Diorama is a film I might see, and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on next week's show. And on Friday, September 9th, the only Netflix original that is American, that is not a documentary, is a film that is called End of the Road. And I know this film is American because that is what the... Um, that's what my research is telling me. It's actually a film that stars Queen Latifah, Bo Bridges, and Ludacris. And it is a high-octane action thriller about a cross-country road trip that becomes a highway to hell for Brenda and her family. Alone in the New Mexico desert, they have to fight for their lives when they become the targets of a mysterious killer. Sounds very interesting. I don't know if the killer is Bo Bridges, I don't know if he's ever played a killer before because he generally seems like a pretty nice guy and that's definitely against type for him. But this is a movie that I definitely will see and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. So that just about does it for all the Netflix original films that will be released for the week of September 4th through September 9th. The only other movie of note that is going to be premiering only on streaming for... that week is a film that is actually premiering on Thursday, September 8th on Disney plus. And that is the live action remake of Pinocchio. Pinocchio himself is CGI um, animated, but the rest of the film is live action. And there's actually an all-star cast behind this um, incantation of Pinocchio. Geppetto is played by none other than Tom Hanks. And I guess when you, yeah, you have a nice guy uh, like Tom Hanks on your roster, he has to play a nice guy on film as well, unless the movie is Elvis. But there are other times where Tom Hanks played a not-so-nice guy, but he's the go-to nice guy. He's definitely, if you're lucky enough to get a nice guy for your film, Tom Hanks is the way to go. Cynthia Erivo is playing the part of the Blue Fairy, which is also a very good casting choice. And some of the voice actors in this film include Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who plays the voice of Jiminy Cricket, Keegan-Michael Key, who plays the voice of Honest John, and Lorraine Brackow playing the voice of Sophia, whoever that character is. But I definitely am going to see this film, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.